from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Kahani Skydance a Baha'i who basically made the Peace Corps her career after becoming a Baha'i. Before playing this interview, I would like to play a piece from the radio program The State We're In, produced by Radio Netherlands. This piece updates the plight of Baha'is and other religious minorities in Egypt. Here is the excerpt, The State We're In. Egyptian Mohammed Hagazi has been in hiding since August. His house has been broken into, his family ostracised, he himself has received death threats. His crime? Asking the courts to recognise that he, whilst born Muslim, has converted to Christianity. In some countries, your choice of religion is just that, a choice. It's a matter for you and your god, or gods. However, in Egypt, it's also a matter for the government, who register your religion on your ID card. That ID card allows you to get a job, open a bank account, get a driving licence. So, if officials have a problem with your choice of religion, you have a problem with many of the basic transactions of everyday life. Your legal right to choose your religion impacts on your right to education, to work, and to be recognised as part of society. Cairo-based correspondent Ursula Lindsay has been following the story, and earlier gave me a little more background. Well, all Egyptians at the age of 16 are obliged to acquire a national identity card, and one of the pieces of information on this card is their religion. But they're only given the option to register one of three religions, what are considered in Egypt the three revealed religions. That's uh, Islam, Judaism, or Christianity. So in effect, the state asks um, its citizens to provide information about their religious beliefs, but it doesn't let them freely put any information that they want or register themselves as whatever they want. And we've got a clip from Joe Stalk from Human Rights Watch explaining why ID cards are so important. Let's just hear that. Every Egyptian, once they reach the age 16, has to have this national ID. They need it to enter university. They need it to get a job. They need it to... uh, They needed to open a bank account. They needed to get a driver's license to pick up a pension check. I mean, just daily life doesn't happen without having a national ID. So it's not only a violation of religious freedom. It's the consequences of of this intolerance uh, violate a whole whole host of, of other rights like access to education, access to work. So this has huge implications for daily living, doesn't it? Yes, and I think what's particularly frustrating to people is that they're in great need of obtaining this card, and yet they're being obliged basically to lie. And this presents particular problems, for example, for the Baha'i community in Egypt, 
Um, this is a small community of about 2,000 people, but that's been in Egypt for generations. But it's considered by Muslims to be a, a sort of deviant offshoot of Islam and not a real religion at all. And so Baha'is, when they try to register their faith on their identity cards, government officials simply refuse to put that down. And I believe you spoke to one such person. I spoke to Nayar Nabil. He's a young student. He comes from a Baha'i family that's lived in Egypt for several generations. And his life is basically stalled right now. Let's hear his story. I'm a student at university in Port Said and I'm 22 years old. Two years ago, I was expelled from the university when I was in my final year. Why? Because I don't have an identity card, a national identity number, because I'm Baha'i. I don't know how to go back to university. I don't know how to find work. My father is dead. I'm supposed to support my family, my mother and brother, but I still can't find work. My little brother has almost finished high school, but to enter the last year of high school, you also need a national ID. He doesn't have a card and will face the same problems as me. When I went to apply for a new national ID card, I wrote Baha'i in the religion line. The government official refused to accept this. He said, show me your birth certificate so I can see what religion you follow. My birth certificate says I'm Baha'i. When I showed him, he also refused to accept this. He became irritated and angry. He told me that only officials in Cairo could deal with this matter. But when I went to the central office in Cairo, they also refused. The head of the office showed me a thick folder and said, these are all the cases of Baha'is who want a national ID, but we won't issue one to any of them. He showed me a whole pile of folders and said flatly, we will never issue you an ID. The problem is the idea that if an employee just writes on someone's papers the word Baha'i, he thinks that he's officially recognizing the religion. It's a big problem for Baha'is. The idea the government has that just by writing down our religion, that means they're recognizing it. I'm not asking for government employees to recognize my religion. That's something between me and God, no one else. So according to Naya Nabil, there's intimidation of groups like Baha'i who don't fit neatly into these boxes. But what if you're already in one of the boxes and you want to change box? There are particular problems with conversion in Egypt, aren't there? Yes. Um, conversion is a very controversial and very sensitive issue in Egypt right now. Um, according to Egyptian law, there's freedom of religion and people should be able to convert freely from one religion to the other. This is enshrined in the Egyptian constitution and in personal status laws. There's a number of Christians who convert to Islam and um, this group has found that converting to Islam is very easy, but when they decide they'd like to convert back to their original faith, it's very difficult. And um, some of them have gone to court to try to officially register their return to Christianity. And the first case of this kind was in 2004. It was the case of Mira Makram Gubran, who I interviewed recently. She had converted to Islam and she went to court to change her religion officially back to Christianity. And she won. Nobody ever expected that I would file that lawsuit. The courts, all the people, the media, nobody could believe that there was a case like that and a verdict like that. It used to be that people were ignorant of these matters and of the law. So the subject of conversion between Islam and Christianity was a source of great fear. Those who converted to Islam, 
and then wanted to convert back to Christianity were scared because people thought the punishment for conversion from Islam was death. But we discovered that the law doesn't say this. After my court case, other people know this too. But it wasn't an easy journey. After she converted back to Christianity, Ms. Gibran lost custody of her son to her Muslim ex-husband. And as she explains, in general, Egyptian courts are biased in favor of the Muslim spouse in all custody matters. In Islam, they say that it's wrong for a Christian mother to raise a Muslim son, even if the father is no good, even if he has bad morals. The judge doesn't take any of that into account. He says a Christian mother is a danger to a Muslim child. So they took my son from me. He's with a father who doesn't know what religion is, a father who, in his whole life, never fed his son a meal, never handed him a glass of water, a father who knows nothing about his son. I think it's important to note that Ms. Gibran was converting back to Christianity. She was conver- converting away from Islam back to her original religion. And in Egypt, that is seen as not um, as big of a sin or a crime as for a born someone who's born Muslim to convert away from Islam to a different religion. Okay, so there's a sliding scale of what's acceptable in converting, depending on your circumstances. It is considered much more controversial for someone who was born Muslim to leave the Muslim faith than it is for someone who converted to Islam to return to their original faith. Um, you, you know, there have been several cases, Ms. Gubran and many others, uh, who have gone to court to return to Christianity. This year, there's been the first case ever of someone who was born Muslim going to court to register um, his a conversion away from Islam. And this is the case of Muhammad Higazi. And his case has been enormously controversial here in Egypt when um, public opinion first got wind of this case. There was a lot of mostly negative media coverage. Um, He has actually gone into hiding now. His lawyer is Gamal Aid, and I spoke to him recently when um, we met in court, when the Egyptian court decided to allow the case to proceed. Mohammed Hegazi has said he feels he's being pursued and kept under surveillance by security services. After his house was broken into by what we'll call some extremists, he decided to go into hiding for his own safety, and we agree with this decision. We truly believe in freedom of worship, the freedom of any person to choose his or her religion, or to choose not to be a Muslim or Christian, to be a secularist or an atheist. That's every person's right. We're convinced of this, and that's why we wanted to defend Mohammed Hegazi. The law is on his side. The problem is that it's new. It's the first time someone has demanded to change his religion legally from Islam to Christianity. People convert from Christianity to Islam all the time, and they are cheered on. What we ask is that all Egyptian citizens have the same rights. That seems like a reasonable request to me. Ursula, how likely is it that Mohammed Hagazi wins his case, and when are we going to know? People say it's quite unlikely that he will win his case. And in fact, um, it's already been postponed several times. The court has already met and postponed um, opening arguments several times. And one of the reasons is because it seems you know, very unlikely that um, the, the government even wants this case to proceed. Um, so that there seems to be a strategy perhaps of just delaying and postponing and not really dealing with such a controversial issue. Um, The opening arguments for the case will be in January. That's when it will begin, but who knows when it will end. 
Whether he wins or whether he doesn't, whatever the outcome, we'll be first in line with a microphone. This isn't the last you'll hear on the subject. Ursula Lindsay, thank you very much for coming on the programme. Thank you, Marnie. That was a news piece from the radio programme The State We're In, produced by Radio Netherlands. Now my interview with Kahani Skydance. I started our interview by asking Kahani where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in, well, till I was nine in Boswell, Pennsylvania. That was a coal mining town. My dad was a miner. I later figured out he was a miner for about 17 years of his life. What, what took so long to find that out? Uh, well, you know, when I was a kid, I wasn't putting two two together. And in later years, I was curious as to how long Dad had been in, actually been in the mines. Because he, uh, when he died, he had black lung and, um, the, uh, yeah. No, emphysema? Emphysema, yeah. Uh-huh. I was really happy in the coal mining town because both my grandparents lived there and my cousins lived there. We had a very simple life, and everybody knew who Derwood McEachran was, my dad. I felt like a very important person when I lived there because we were so well-known. And, of course, it was just a tiny little town. But my parents and my grandparents were all very much respected, too. Honest people and, and hardworking and religious. My dad wasn't, my mother was. What was her religious persuasion? Well, we were Presbyterians. Not all of the family were, some were Lutherans, but, but uh, Protestant. I was nine years old when we moved away from there, and that was really hard on me because I was a nobody all of a sudden. I didn't know anybody. I felt totally out of, out of everything. When I've been in Peace Corps a few times and traveled some, when I've been in a place where it reminds me of the town I grew up in, the way the, the camaraderie of the village and so forth, always is very nostalgic for me because that was one of the best times of my life. Not that I haven't had a great life. Before. Sure, <laughs> It's sure. a wonderfully great life. Right. I don't know why I'm getting so bogged down here. but no, that's, <laughs> well, And where did you move to and why did you have to move there? Well... My mother and dad wanted to get him out of the mines. Mm-hmm. And my parents, I believe, were the first in Boswell to move out of Boswell to any place, you know, other than another small town. They moved to Erie. At first, my dad just kind of had odd jobs. I think that one of the major jobs he had when he got there at first was putting up telephone poles, which was, of course, a lot of labor. But he was youngish then and, and could do that. By then, there were, let's see, how many kids... I think there were four of us at that time. I have seven siblings. Mm-hmm. Then he got a job at the General Electric as a patrolman there. And in Erie, they don't have Pinkerton. They never changed over to Pinkerton. They always kept their the men there as their employees. I mean, he retired from there, so that was a good thing. He was a security guard. He was a security guard. And I was very, very proud of my parents as I grew older and realized what they had done to do that. I thought they were magnificent. I still think that about them. They're gone, but they were wonderful parents. So how long were you in Erie? Till I was 30 years old. What did you do after high school? I got married not too long after high school. Actually, I, I met my husband in uh, our senior year. Uh, we married the February following graduation. So I worked in a dime store, Woolworths, actually, in Erie. I think that I had a job in a dress shop there for a little while, too. And then my husband was had to go to, into the Army, 
was inducted for the Korean War, and I moved to Harrisburg, Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, outside of Harrisburg, and stayed with my father's mother, sister, and her husband. And I worked at a children's department store in Harrisburg, which I so thoroughly enjoyed while Walt was in Korea. They worked for some really wonderful, wonderful people. They are good people, and they enjoyed having me there, particularly Grandma did, because lots of times she was lonely, and, and we talked a lot. And she told me what it was like to be older, and now I'm a lot older than she was then. And I can appreciate some of the things that she said about how you feel, still feel young, and you are so surprised when you look in the window glass or something <laughs> at who that person is there. Yeah. You had quite a bit of support system there. I did. Yeah. I had a wonderful support system there, yes. And my my employers just loved me. This has always been true for me. I've been really blessed. Mm-hmm. The Sussmans just thought I was great. And when the young Sussmans had a baby, they wouldn't have it any other way. But I babysat for them Sunday afternoons. They waited for me outside of my grandma's till I walked home from church mm-hmm. and took me into their penthouse I took care of their small baby while they were gone all Sunday until maybe 9 o'clock at night or something like that. Now, the Sussmans, who are they? My employers in Harrisburg. Okay. Just beautiful people. I was there for almost two years, well, maybe a year and a half while he was in Korea. And then we moved back to Erie, and we bought a house. And we were both, you have to know this, we were both really young and naive. I mean, especially naive. (laughs) He he as much as I. We bought a house that was one that you had to complete. And we worked hard on it, but we ended up losing it. Not in a bad way, not that we went into debt or anything like that, but we walked away from it. We went through a hard time in our marriage at that time. And Walt had been, of course, in Korea And on his way there, he had occasion to spend a couple of weeks in San Francisco because he had escorted a prisoner to California, and they chose him because he's a real straight guy, and they knew they could trust him. So he was separated from his unit and spent a couple of weeks in San Francisco before he was shipped over to Korea, and he loved it, so he said he wanted to move there, and I said that was fine with me. By then, we had four children. We went to... San Jose, actually, because we had a relative there. We actually lived in Campbell, which is right outside of San Jose, and we were there for, yeah, I think about six years. Again, Walt's the one who always moved us. Mm -hmm. He um, was exploring a place called Brook Trails that was up near a place called Willits, which was farther north in California, in the mountains, He said he wanted to move up there, and he wanted to buy a property up there. We never did buy a property, but we did move up there. I went up there first with the children and rented a house. It was in a canyon. It was a very enjoyable place. We we had a lot of fun there and met marvelous people. And it was during the hippie days, too, so some of our neighbors were quite hippie. (laughs) I remember we lived about five miles out of town, and we used to pick up hitchhikers who would be usually just young people who were hitching to Canada or going back to Canada. And a lot of the people we picked up actually were Canadians, and we've actually had some of them in our home overnight. The kids really enjoyed that time a great deal. We were in Willits about eight years, I believe. I had become a Baha'i in the meantime. How is it that you ran into the Baha'i faith? I was working up at Brook Trails, this place I told you that they were selling property. There was a, an old lodge there. It had been there a long time, and 
there was a membership thing, thing involved up there, and I actually had a job as a cocktail waitress up there. There was a young woman who worked in the dining room who sometimes asked me if I'd carry her drinks in for her because she was a Baha'i and she didn't really feel right doing that. She encouraged me to go to the Baha'i meetings with her, particularly because Marilee Kiesler was there and she thought that Marilee and I were a lot alike and that we would enjoy each other. And my daughter Claudia was then almost 15 and she had two close friends. They were twin sisters who were born-again Christians and went to a very fundamentalist Christian church and who would take her to church with them. And that wasn't what she wanted, but I realized she was really seeking because I had walked away from the church some years before. When I was in San Jose area, Campbell, I joined the NAACP. And, of course, that was the days when I have these senior moments. I am a senior. I'm 75. <laughs> 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 in the movement anyway, you know. And uh, so I joined the NAACP, and I became the membership chairman one year in San Jose. And that was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, big time going around trying to sell memberships, you know, in my neighborhood. <laughs> some of the things that people said and some of the things they didn't do when they slammed their door. I didn't say when they slammed their door. That was quite fascinating. Yeah. And it was a real, I mean, I already knew what was going on, but it really brought it home big time to me personally. Now, what moved you to even get involved with the NAACP? Well, you know, my mother and father were raised in an environment where black people were called niggers. That was a common thing to hear. My mother and father didn't indulge in that a lot, but my, a lot of my relatives did, and certainly other people in town. And I had never seen a black person until I moved to Erie. When we'd sit on the bus, I used to deliberately try to sit next to somebody who was black because I wanted to figure out what was different about them. And it was maybe age 10, 11, 12. I'd actually get as close as I could to see if they smelled different, if they talked different, and I could never figure out what was different about them except that they were a different color. I just had this, I guess, affinity for black people to a certain extent. It, it just, none of it made sense to me. There were a number of little things in my life, well, big things, I guess, that I remember as a child being told by my teacher that we had enough coal to last us forever. And she had told us how coal was created, and I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense uh, that we should, you know. <laughs> and then we did artificial respiration when I was young. Do you know artificial respiration? Yeah, for first aid. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and you know, if you lay somebody on their stomach and you press on their back. And, and I used to think, why don't we just breathe into their mouth? <laughs> and then, you know, I was just a kid, and then years later. But, you know, sometimes kids have these insights that other people don't have or other people do and don't talk about them. But at any rate, I think it was kind of that way with me and black people. Was I just had this insight that there was really no difference. And I wanted to do something about it. So you got involved with the NAACP? So I got involved with the NAACP. Well, I had always been active in the church before I moved to California, and I, I still was to a certain degree. The church that I went to had one black man. He sang in the choir. And he was the only black, man, black person I ever saw there. In the NAACP, we talked about doing some exchanges. Some black people would go to our church and then 
some people from our church would go to this black church that we, we wanted to make this arrangement. And so this one extraordinary woman who is extremely good artist and well-spoken and, and a college teacher and just all kinds of credentials, she was going to accompany me to the meeting with the, um, the elders of the church. They insulted her, and they berated everything, and they essentially said, you got to be crazy. You think we're really going to do this? And I thought to myself, one, why did they, why did they even ask us agree to this meeting if they knew they weren't going to do this? There was nothing I could say to them that would change them. They just, they just knocked us down, you know, just knocked our feet out from under us. And when she and I walked away, I said to her, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know that would happen. And she said, I did. And I thought, and she came anyway. How brave. I know that most people, when they leave the church, they just don't come back. I wrote a letter to the elders, and I told them about my disappointment and that I no longer wanted to be affiliated with the, the church. About a month later, they sent me a letter saying they were going to pray for my immortal soul. And I thought that was just fine because God uses prayer His way. And when people pray for me, I appreciate it, no matter what their intent so your daughter was searching, and you were disillusioned with the church. Yes, I had, and, and I had gone through a tremendous amount of soul searching because I love God, and I never, you know, I never could walk away from God, and I love Jesus too, and and it was it was really taking a toll on me. So I think that while in my conscious mind I said I'm going here for Claudia, I went there for me too. So we started going to meetings, and we became Baha'is within probably about six meetings, if that. And what was it about the Baha'i faith that attracted you to it? The people who were there, mm-hmm. they were all eager, they were all seeking, and nobody set themselves above anybody else. Marilee was the organizer in a real sense because she had been a Baha'i for a while. She had moved to town because she was teaching there. I still feel that one of the most wonderful blessings in my life is to have known Marilee. We did things together. We prayed together. We planned together. We wanted to share with other people because everything we had was happy. One young woman I remember joined our group. She came from a really rough, rough environment in her home, and it was very hard to be around her. I I was uncomfortable a lot. She was probably around Claudia's age, I think, maybe a tad bit older. I was having a really hard time with it, and I just said to myself, okay, this, this woman, this girl is as interested in this as I am. And before very long, I knew I just loved this person. Mm-hmm. Love just um, permeated everything. Both you and Claudia became Baha'is at the same time? We did, but I think within a day of each other. And how would you say that the Baha'i faith changed the direction of your life? Well, this is where the story gets sad. For about four years, it changed my life so that I was in a state of real kind of almost euphoria. I was, I was happy with my friends. I was ecstatic. But somehow also created an awareness in me that made me realize that, that I needed to get out of my marriage. And, and that's against Baha'i principles. But I didn't really have a marriage. I asked my husband for a divorce. When you want to get a divorce uh, as a Baha'i, it's allowed, but you need to go through a year of patience where 
you are separated from that person and you don't date them or anything, but you also don't date other people and you are in a state of prayer and trying to see if this is the right thing. And you meet often with one of the local spiritual assemblies. What is a local spiritual assembly? A local spiritual assembly is an elected group of people in any given area. There needs to be nine Baha'is in the area in order to form an assembly. And indeed, if there are nine adult Baha'is, one needs to form an assembly. And that's a local group that just oversees the progress of things in that community, so to speak, and, and one with which people can consult. This is a group that helps keep that cohesiveness alive. So back to your story, you had representatives from this local spiritual assembly meet with you regularly during this year of patients? I would go to their, to their uh, assembly meetings, I and I would have a brief time with them. I did date a person during that time, and I told them that. I couldn't do that, and I was got into a real stubborn streak, and I walked away from the face. What was the effect on Claudia? On Claudia, she was already in college, and Claudia is very much her own person, and she doesn't share her feelings a lot that way. She said that was okay for her. In fact, as did my son Clay, my daughter Kimber, I think only recently forgave me. And my son David, I'm not sure if he ever forgave me. As far as you walking away from the faith, what did that... Oh, for Claudia? Yeah. She was apprehensive, but she did not preach at me or anything. At that time, I just didn't feel like I was affiliated with any religion. But at the same time, I still said some Baha'i prayers just because they meant so much to me. Anything that Baha'i that came my way always thrilled me. I walked away, but I was not detached from the faith in some part of me. I think Claudia knew that. So you, you were interested in pursuing the Peace Corps? Yes, I had always been. So from the time Kennedy told us about Peace Corps, I had four small children at that time and no college education And I decided when my children grew up, I was going to go to college so I could join the Peace Corps, and that's exactly what I did. After I graduated from college, I worked for two years, applied for Peace Corps, and went into Peace Corps for the first time. I've done it three times. I got home three and a half years ago, most recently. And where did you go those three times? The first time was 1981 through 1984, and I went to Kenya. I worked in women in development because it was during the decade of women, and I worked with a Maasai group and helped them market their beadwork. I did three years because... By the time I found a market, 18 months had passed, and I asked Peace Corps if I could extend, and they were fine with that. So I did a third year and found a market, taught the women how to sell after I left, and they did so for 10 years after I left, which is quite a record. They were wonderful women. And then the second time I was in Lesotho, which is in southern Africa. It's actually within the country of South Africa, and it starts at 5,000 feet. It was a real hardship physically for me, but I had returned to the faith in the meantime. I just had the time of my life there, even though it was a real physical hardship, the first house I lived in, in this place where I had no connection, really, with the camp town even that was about uh, 12 kilometers from where I was, which was over hill and dale, and 
didn't have any public transportation or anything. And I just was terrified because so many things were happening that I just didn't know if I could physically make it. I prayed it so fervently, day and night, and cried while I was praying. And, and then I'd say, God, I, you know, I think you want me to be here, but if you want me to be here, you've got to show me how to do it. And he did. Hmm. Now, what were the circumstances that brought you back to the Baha'i Faith? When I came home from India one time, I had some jewelry with me, actually from Nepal, thought I'd sell some, and my daughter Kimber and I got into the business for a little while of selling Nepali jewelry and also representing local artisans. We enjoyed doing it, but we had a falling out, and it all really stemmed from the fact that I had left her daddy. I mean, that was not what was discussed exactly, but that's what it was about a lot. And I couldn't make it on my own, and I I had been staying with her and Fred, her husband, in the Bay Area, and I went up to Santa Rosa and Sebastopol, which is a little farther north, where I'd lived before, where I went to school when I was in college, and I uh, got a job there, and I decided that I was really lonely, and what was the thing that meant the most to me in life before, and I realized it was the Baha'i faith. So I looked up the Baha'is in Sebastopol, and Boy, what a wonderful group I found there. And they took me in, and they they were my friends. I had just a really good experience with them. Oh, actually, I hadn't given up selling at that point. I was still selling. I was up there doing it on my own. It was later I gave it up. And one of the artisans that I represented moved with her husband to North Carolina, and she asked me to come out there and work in her office for her and so I did do that. I went out and worked for Nancy for a while. That didn't work out real well, but my son Clay met her as a result of that, and they got married. I have a wonderful grandson as a result of that. So what were the circumstances that you went to India? I went to India on my way home from Peace Corps the first time. Uh, I'd always wanted to go to India, and I spent, I think, about three months there. And this family that I met in Nepal, they're Indian, but they have bookstores in Nepal, which they still have. Their oldest daughter of two children at that time was then four years old. And we went to the village and brought her back. And Rama, the father, said that he would like me to take her to America. And her mother said, no, she's too young. And I didn't have any feeling about it one way or the other, you know. If they really wanted me to take her and I could find a way, I would do that. But I was not invested in it. And did not take her, of course, at that time. But at a later time, when I did go back, she was eight years old, and her mother said it was okay. She really didn't want her to go. It, was, it just wrenched her mother. And still to this day, I think, still hurts her. But she wanted the best for her. And I got the permission through the consulate there. And I brought her to America when she was eight years old. And my oldest daughter, Claudia, raised her with her daughter, who's about the same age, Katie. Songam, as a matter of fact, is in Kenya right now. <laughs> Talk about going around here. She is in her doctoral studies at Davis University. She's a water engineer. She studies water systems and so forth. And she helped to create this simple filtration system for villages. And they had a con- uh, you had to uh, apply to get the fellowship to go over to Kenya and work very, very hard to test the system, and she was awarded that. And so she's just been there for, I think, about nine months now. 
she's perfecting the system. It's a system that is so simple that when she walks away from there, the local people will be able to take care of it themselves. If it breaks down, they'll be able to fix it and so forth, and they can use local materials. So it's something that is much needed for such a long time, and as a Peace Corps volunteer, I'm very much aware of that. I'm very proud of Songam. She's an extraordinary young woman. So how long were you in Lesotho? Lesotho? Mm-hmm. I was there for two years. The normal Peace Corps is two years, mm-hmm. and I was there for exactly two years. When I came back, my daughter was working for the chiropractor that I had worked for before I left, and when I went to see her, she said, Oh, Mom, I've got this job for you, and she had this little thing posted on the wall, facing the, the wall, and she said, You better call right away because it's been on, it's been in the paper for a long time. And I was tired, and I didn't call for about a couple of weeks. And when I called, they still had the job open. And, of course, I later found out why. It was up in the mountains outside of Garberville. It was just 20 miles away, but it took an hour to get there at least. If you went to school there or worked there, you really needed to live there. It was about, I think, 3,000 feet, and it got snow in the winter. It was a school for massage and body and uh, energy work quite well-known, actually, and I got the job as the HR up there, and I worked there for a little over two years. I uh, got fed up with the politics of the place. It was a wonderful, it was probably the most beautiful place I've ever lived in my life. And so I just got a job taking care of a woman to get off the mountain, and I applied for Peace Corps again. I applied to go to a place that I where I would not be cold, and where I didn't have to learn another language because I've never been very good at it. And I was sent to St. Lucia in the Eastern Caribbean. And what did you do there? They needed extra people to teach HIV-AIDS awareness because at that time, I'm not sure if it's still true, but the Eastern Caribbean, that entire area there, second only to Sub-Saharan Africa in the incident of HIV-AIDS. And so I got a job teaching HIV-AIDS awareness. And the local person who was in charge of the health sector there, this is a a St. Lucian, put me with preschool, kindergarten, first and second grade. And I said, I really don't want to do that. And he said, well, I want you to. And I could have gone to Peace Corps and said, you know, I, I don't think I can do this. And they would have backed me. But I thought, well, I can't just not do it. Somehow, it just seems so off the wall that he asked me to do that. <laughs> so I just felt like I needed to give it a shot. And it was one of the most glorious things that ever happened to me because I was not a good teacher of the kids, but then they weren't having very good teaching anyway because discipline there is incredibly harsh. It's loud because the top of the rooms are all open so the air can circulate and the teachers talk each louder than the other and they all carry sticks so they can hit the kids and it was gruesome and I thought to myself you know remember that virtues book that you gave your kids why don't you send for one of those and I looked online and doggone if there wasn't a virtues educator's guide and so I ordered one And when it came, I was so enthralled, I thought, this is the answer. And I thought, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll buy some more of these books. I'll invite some parents and teachers to my home, and we'll study this. And I told somebody at Peace Corps, and they said, you know, we're toward the end of the year. Write a proposal. I'm sure you'll get funded. And I did. 
and I had books coming out my ears, and I had people signing up for my classes, and I got a, a classroom, and they upgraded my classroom each time I did it. I did it three times, and we had graduations, and the teachers were, and the parents were just enthralled. They, and then it happened that Peace Corps opened another island, reopened an island, and so the director was coming down. As it turns out, he was ill, and his, uh, the person who was next to him came. She was delightful, and, of course, she had this entourage, and, and they wanted to go to some of the other islands, including ours, and they wanted to see some of the programs that were working, so, of course, Peace Corps sent them to my place. And uh, we met on a Saturday, which we did not normally do. The women were fine with that. And uh, they had told me that they wanted me to just do a class like I normally would do. So I'm doing that. And Marianne, who was the, I, I don't remember her position in Peace Corps, but right up there next to the director, said, you know, I'd really like to know how the women feel about this. And I said, oh, that's fine. So we women took turns going around telling how they felt about it, and they were all so excited. And one of the women, at the end of her excitement, said, and I want this to be taught in the teacher's college. And the director said, it will be. I promise you that. We'll make sure that happens. And he took me in, and we were going to have me do that. And I said, I really didn't feel that I could teach it on the college level unless I had the training and Peace Corps wasn't able to pay for it. And nurse said she felt I needed to go back to America. And I did, but in the meantime... I came from the United States, bless her heart, just a wonderful woman who had studied some of the virtues and was going to go back and get the course that would enable her to teach in the college. So when she came back, the man who was in charge of my program in Soufair, where I lived, had been saying that he wanted me to teach or at least have a, a day-long session with the people in the Ministry of Health. I had said, fine, set it up, I'll be there. And finally, toward the time, you know, it was getting time for me to leave. He said, okay, now we have to do this. And I said, okay, fine. And then I said, you know, would it be art if this other woman did it? And he said, well, sure, as long as it gets done well. And so I attended, but I had her do it. And as a result of that, she met people that it would have taken her nine months to a year to meet, and she started teaching and took off. For the benefit of the listening audience, the Virtues Project is something you, you can Google Virtues Project yes. and you can see what the group that creates this curriculum and what it's all about. Is there any more to your story right there in St. Lucia? Well, I left with a joyous feeling, of course, having made many friends, none of whom keep in touch but that's not exactly unexpected. It's sort of St. Lucian. <laughs> and I know that if I were to be there, they would embrace me and be just so thrilled to see me. I have sent a few things. I made friends with a young man who, well, he was in his 40s, I think, who um, had some, I guess he would say he was borderline mentally retarded. Very fine young man. And he used to uh, help me shop and things like that. And I knew some of his needs, so I would get things together and send to him and to a few other people there. So I've kept in touch that way. I just always have a really good feeling when I think about St. Lucia and, and the joy that, that I have in having introduced the Virtues Project to St. Lucia. And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't me that did that. I mean, it was just, you know, if he had not put me in that position, that probably would never have happened. And if I had said no, that would not have happened. I think that's why I accepted it when he gave that to me, because 
I just really let God direct me in my life. So what happened when you got back from St. Lucia? When I got back, I um, got to see family. I went visiting around. And my daughter, Kimber, who was my youngest child, in the meantime had bought two curves. And those are fitness centers for women, one in El Cerrito and one in Emeryville. And she said, after I'd been home for a while, she called me. I was living with this granddaughter, Songam, who was then attending Davis and living in Woodland. Kimber called and said, Mom, would you come in to the club, uh, which would be about an hour's drive or so from where I was. She called and said that she would like for me to come to the club a couple nights a week and change her filing system from a file folder to binders. So I would just sit there at a table at the club and just do this paperwork, and she knew that I liked to organize things. And she offered to pay me quite well, and I thought that would be really dandy because I didn't have a job at the time, and I do need to work. I kind of did a lot of Peace Corps and stuff like that, so I really don't have a pension or anything of that sort. I came down and started doing that, and I did it for maybe a month, and we had a computer crash, and it was all hands on deck, and the first thing I knew, I was out there working with everybody else, and then she suggested that I come to work for her, and so I came down and stayed with them for a while and started working here. And she liked what I was doing, and she asked me if I would be the assistant manager. And I agreed to that. And then the woman who had been managing for several years for her, a couple of years for her, because it had only been a couple of years, decided that she wanted to be home with her little girl. So there I was, probably not knowing as much as most of the people who worked for us, and I was the manager. And so I muddled through, but now I'm really good. <laughs> and I just thoroughly enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoy the women here. They're, they're wonderful people. And, uh, of course, this is, you know, women improving their lives, and that's always a wonderful, upbeat experience. Mm-hmm. So, Kahani, I have to ask you, your name is very interesting. Were you born with the name Kahani no, Skydance? No, not at all. No. So- I was born Constance Lou McAkron. Okay, so tell me about your name. Well, when I was in India the first time, they took me to the village, and there's a Hindi word, K-A-N-I, pronounced Connie, and that was my name. And the women would not call me Connie because it means a woman who's blind in one eye. The Hindi word does. And so they called me Kahani, which means a story. And I liked it so much better that when I got home, I changed my name to Kahani, and uh, while I was in Kenya, the women there called me Kijolu, which means one who comes unexpectedly. That is, you know, marriages are arranged there, but once in a great while, a man will bring a woman home unexpectedly. Why did they give you because that name? Even though Peace Corps said that they were sending somebody, it was unexpected because, you know, we never follow through on anything. I mean, white people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> non-Africans never follow through on anything, quote and unquote. So they were surprised when I came, so they, I came unexpectedly and they called me that. So that's my middle name. Skydance, actually, I made up when I got a divorce. I was Evans, and, and uh, I didn't want to go back to McAkron as much as I love it. And so I made up the name Skydance. What was the inspiration? Nothing in particular. It was Christmas Day, I think. Two youngest and I lived on Tattersfield Hill before we left Willits. And the two kids went down to um, the teen center. And I was sitting there after dinner, and I thought, okay, now I want to get a new name. So I started writing things down. And I probably had 20-some names written down, and none of them resonated with me. 
And so I looked to see if there was a theme, and Sky was in there a lot, and dance popped into my mind, and that was it. I I tried it out for a week. I went to the bank and told them I was changing my name and stuff like that, and the first thing I knew, I was Sky Dance. Where do you think life's going to take you from here? I haven't the foggiest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. At some point, Kimber will probably sell the club. We had it up for sale last year, but uh, she's glad now she didn't sell it because things have changed, and she's really enjoying working here herself to some degree, and I admire her and Fred. They're doing such wonderful things with their kids, and I feel like I'm really making a real contribution to my family, and that's very important to me, and at the same time, I've got a nice life. I'm thinking about if my health is, holds up that I might go into Peace Corps again or, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm just open to whatever comes my way. I know that I'll, I'll be led because I always have been. And also I find that one of the things I do is that I bring people together. That's happened to me, for me a lot. But I, I, I feel like uh, I don't really need to know. I mean, once in a while I think, oh, what am I going to do when I'm not, you know, and then those moments passed because I've never really pretty much known what was going to be next and it's always been good. Well, Kahani, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kahani Skydance, a Baha'i who basically made the Peace Corps her career after becoming a Baha'i. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.